0: I'd like to begin by welcoming everybody today. Can people hear me clearly enough? Yeah? Very good. So, uh, the uh, the way I, I like to begin these uh, day-long events, day-long meditations, uh, is with some of our traditional chanting. Um, and usually I try to find something that uh, somehow, somewhere or other fits the the theme of the day, so the uh, the verse i 'll begin with is called the Jaya Purita, which is the um, protective verses um, that speak about the Buddha's victory uh, over ignorance. The, the chant begins with the words Jayanto Bodhi Mule. and so it 's uh, talking about the uh, the victory at the root. The mula of the bodhi tree. So, uh, the and uh, during the course of, of today, I'll talk uh, uh, probably a lot, <laughs> if uh, history is anything to go by. Um, <laughs> and uh, but speaking about uh, when we we talk of uh, of the Buddha, we're not just talking about the historical Buddha, but uh, this very quality of of awareness or knowing this uh, awake, uh, aware, knowing mind. And uh, this so this is the main theme for the day that we'll be uh, looking at and exploring, developing, uh, hopefully. And so uh, as I begin the chant and uh, just to recite these few verses, just let this be an opportunity to allow yourself to, to settle, to, to relax, be at ease, and uh, let your attention just settle on the, the sound. It's, it, it's in the Pali language, so... Uh, uh, you probably won't understand more than a few syllables here and there, but uh, regardless of that, you can trust me that it's, it's all good stuff.
1: <laughs>
0: and uh, also the way that, that the chanting works uh, and uh, the spirit of it is that by reciting these verses, invoking these uh, sentiments, these uh, principles, then we in some way, shape or form invite that that's the same principles into our, our own lives, so it's also a expressing our aspiration for um, the victory of our, the wisdom of our own our own hearts, our own minds, over uh, over Mara over the, the forces of uh, ignorance and delusion to uh, uh, assist and, and support our efforts to awaken. Jaya do Bo mo nandi want no ho hi Aparachitta palange sise patavipokare abhiseke samba budhanang agapato bamotati sunakatang sumangalang mangalang su pambatang su chasuyetang Brahmachari su banda kaya kamang mung kamang ka mung mano te banda ki na banda banda padakine kine bhavatu saba mangalang ra kandu saba devanda bhavandute ra Sambhadham bhāvena sadāsotī bhavandute Bhavattu sābham āngalāṅra kandu sāmbha saṅganu bhāvena sadāsotī soti Sambhadham <laughs> I'm also conscious of the fact today is 2nd of July and um, this means we're approaching the 4th of July and this is a, uh, a day that um, people of this country uh, tend to celebrate freedom from tyranny of the British.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so if any of you have any problems with my accent... Um, the, uh, bowing to the British. <laughs> we have two days now. <laughs> so, uh, but um, also, uh, as uh, people are also probably very aware, um, <coughs> in, this, uh, in this area, um, the uh, San Francisco, uh, Berkeley uh, Bay Area, there is, um, t- people tend to uh, do things in different ways. So rather than having Columbus Day, we have Indigenous Peoples Day and... Uh, and so uh, Independence Day is often um, put forth as Interdependence Day. And uh, so that uh, um, we tend to, uh, at least within the Buddhist circles, tend to tilt it towards being a, uh, a day to celebrate uh, freedom from uh, the real tyranny, the tyranny of greed, hatred, and delusion. The British were just a kind of warm-up act. So... <laughs> so. <laughs> So the the real tyrants are the the ones uh, operating inside um, the tyranny of greed, hatred, and delusion. And this this chant that we did, the Jaya Paritta, is um, uh, it's in a way celebrating that that victory of the Buddha from the 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 uh, freedom from the tyranny of of ignorance, greed, hatred, delusion. And so that this is. Uh, definitely something worth celebrating also. So when all the flag-waving and apple pie-consuming and parading uh, is happening, you can do a little internal translation for yourselves. So that, uh, that, uh, this is uh, freedom, uh, true freedom of the heart is something to, to celebrate, along with political freedom, uh, in whatever way, shape, or form it takes, but also that the, the real uh, genuine freedom is something uh, uh, even more worthy of, of uh, rejoicing in. So uh, today's theme, uh, the one who knows, is a, uh, <coughs> um, a f- somewhat broad theme. But uh, what I, I'll try to do is is to talk about some of the basic uh, areas that relate to this quality of uh, of awareness, of knowing, um, and how it sits within the the, uh, the Buddha's teachings, and how it's talked about, particularly with the in the Thai. Forest tradition, which is the lineage that that uh, we come from, and uh, also how these how we can practice uh, and cultivate that quality of of knowing or awareness, and how that can really support our uh, uh, truly being free. How we uh, establish that quality of of uh, uh, liberation, uh, freedom from from the inner tyrants. The um, <coughs> One of the um, the things that you come across in the Buddhist scriptures is that <laughs> said he lifting his great tome, <laughs> um, the uh, the Buddha used many different words to refer to this area of uh, of uh, of uh, knowing or uh, awareness, um, and right in his uh, his first discourse, the turning of the wheel, um, the uh, the Buddha was describing his own insight uh, arising and what, uh, what had occurred under the Bodhi tree. And uh, as he said um, in Pali, it says Chakung udapadi, nyanang udapadi, Panya udapadi, Vijja udapadi, A Loka which means um, vision arose, understanding arose, wisdom arose, knowing arose, light arose, uh, and uh, concerning things not, not heard before. So all these terms, uh, and the Buddha was, was very prone to using these long strings of, of related terms to, to describe an experience. Um, and uh, there's various different theories about why he did that. Um, but often it's because he's trying to talk about an, uh, an area that's difficult to describe. And so by using a string of, of different words that all allude or give hints in different ways to um, these qualities, then they point to uh, What's well, a common experience, but it's, but it's hard to articulate. Another theory is that because the Buddha was talking to people from all sorts of different backgrounds, from different uh, regions, so that in different areas, different so maybe on the East Bay they talk about it one way, and uh, San Francisco they talk about it another way, the peninsula people always use another language, and uh, then Marin has got a certain tongue, and Mendocino is a whole other dialect altogether. You know, so that he used strings of words uh, to allude and to reflect uh, different uh, regional uh, nuances. But several of these uh, of these terms, um, they relate to uh, this quality of awareness, so particularly um, jnana and panya, vijja, uh, these are all uh, terms. Jnana sometimes translated as knowledge, uh, panya often translated as wisdom, vijja as knowledge, uh, as transcendent knowing or, or awareness. But they, uh, one of the things in Buddhist practice is that the, you're not trying to nail down the precise and absolute true meaning for any word, but it's just by having a constellation of different terms and just having a, uh, a general sense of what they're pointing to. It's really finding within our own hearts what's that um, quality that's being referred to. What is it? What is this? And then we can form our own language. You know, We each have our own... Uh, Way of articulating things um, to clarify. Okay, this is what he's talking about when he says wisdom, or when he says knowing. Okay, okay, I get it. It's this. <laughs> so it's uh, using a variety of terms, and through the day I'll probably shift the language a bit. But you know, if the mind gets caught into doubt, well, what's the difference between transcendent wisdom and awareness? <laughs> when he says knowing, is that is that a capital K or a small K? Why has he got a K at all? You know. <laughs> So uh, try not to get too caught into those uh, minutiae, but more to, uh, to listen to the words that are used and getting a, a sense of what is it that's being referred to and then finding that quality and, and learning to uh, apply it. Um, the, um, one of the other uh, passages I thought I'd... I'd um, I'll read a few things for you uh, during the day, just um, from mostly from Ajahn Shah's teachings but from others as well. But to um, illustrate some of these, these points. So, this is from um, a very early thing that came into print of his in English um, called Fragments of a Teaching. And it's findable in, in this book here, this compendium of Ajahn Chah's teachings. If you, just, if you have one book on your shelf, this is a good one for it to be Even, Food for the Heart even though I edited it and wrote the introduction, even though I hadn't. (laughs) I don't get any
2: royalties.
0: (laughs) But it's just packed with all kinds of good stuff. And so this is from Fragments of a Teaching. I think actually Jack Cornfield was the one who originally um, transcribed this and and, uh, translated it. So Ajahn Chah says, One who wishes to reach the Buddha Dhamma must firstly be one who has faith or confidence as a foundation. We must understand the meaning of, meaning of Buddha Dhamma as follows. Buddha, the one who knows. You know, in Thai, Puru, Pu is a person or a being. Ru is, the, is to know. Puru, the one who has purity, radiance and peace in the heart. Dhamma, the characteristics of purity, radiance and peace which arise from morality, concentration and wisdom. Therefore, one who is to reach the Buddha Dhamma is one who cultivates and develops morality, concentration, and wisdom within themselves. So, um, uh, this is not unique to Ajahn Chah, but certainly within the forest tradition, it's often how the word Buddha is used. Uh, Rather than just referring to um, Gotama Buddha, the historical teacher, the word Buddha is taken in, um, in its... Uh, true meaning, uh, which uh, uh, is the that which is awake or aware. And there's a, a famous uh, encounter that took place in the Buddha's life where uh, he was had been walking along a, a dusty road, and then went to, to he left the road and 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 went to sit down and meditate under a tree. And then a, a Brahmin called Dona. Um, saw the footprints in the, in the dust and, thought, and saw the, the, um, the marks on the footprints and thought, wow, these are very strange markings. They've got perfectly circular wheels and, and interesting patterns. You know, Who do these feet belong to? So he followed the footprints off the road and off into the forest and, and then under this tree he saw this extraordinary yogi sitting there, this kind of very tall uh, and uh, poised uh, radiant figure of the Buddha sitting under a tree and so he, he came up nearby and and knelt down and said, "Excuse me, um, are you are you some kind of a god?" And the Buddha said, "No, I, I'm I, I'm not a, a not a god." He says, well, "Are you a some kind of a a, a devata, you know, a, 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 an angel?" He said, "No, I'm not. I'm not a devata." Well, are you some kind of yakka, some sort of spirit? He Says, "No, I'm not a yakka." Well, are you some sort of uh, earth deva? You are like a. Uh, a naiad, or a dryad or a tree spirit says, No, I'm not a I'm not an earth deva. He says, well, are you a human being? He says, No, I'm not a human being. And he kind of goes through the whole list. Like <laughs> Well, what are if you're you know, if you're none of these things, what are you? He says, Remember me as one who is awake. Buddha. And that encounter, that's um some people feel that's where the the tradition of using the word Buddha to refer to uh, to the teacher came from that particular encounter. So, when he, because obviously he you know he was born from human parents, he had a human body, and so on one level you know he he started out as a human, <laughs> or he was a human, but more uh, after the enlightenment, then what he could, what he was prepared to uh, identify with or, or take as the defining characteristic of his nature was was awakenedness. The one, Buddha means the one who is awake, the one who is aware. So in the, the Thai tradition, and, the, and particularly amongst the, um, the forest teachers uh, like uh, Ajahn Ajan Ajahn Buddha Dasa, Ajahn Chah's teacher Ajahn Man, they will use the word um, Buddha to refer to this, this very quality of, of wakefulness or awareness that is a faculty of our own nature, of our own being. And so that um, uh, when, when we are talking about taking refuge in Buddha, um, then principally it's not just admiring the, uh, and looking up to Gautama Buddha as a teacher, as a spiritual mentor, but what makes it a real refuge. And this is something that um, hopefully people will be able to get a sense for during today. Uh, what makes it a true refuge is that this is actually a quality of your own nature, our own nature, already existent. It's not like you—you're um, the one that came off the production line without, <laughs> without any of this um, Buddha stuff. You know, and maybe they got Dhamma and Sangha there, but they definitely left the Buddha off. You know? <laughs> but uh, that uh, this is the suggestion, or the the, um, the proposition that this very quality of of awareness, of knowing, which is uh, an innate faculty of our own mind, our own being, that is uh, what is a refuge. And when we are able to uh, clarify uh, that quality, we're able to establish a sense of, oh, this is a quality of of knowing. This is is what it is. This is how it works. And we're able to take refuge in that, which means um, to be able to... Uh, take that quality as the vantage point through which all experience is known. So, probably most of you are familiar, somewhat familiar, with vipassana meditation. Is that correct? Great. Anyone never heard of vipassana, or insight meditation? Don't be shy. Okay, so, so with vipassana meditation, uh, as you all know, that the aim is to um, uh, say train the mind to focus on the present moment and to rest in that quality of, of pure, uh, choiceless awareness, knowing the arising and passing away of, of sounds, of feelings, of, of ideas, of moods, memories, thoughts, perceptions of all kinds. And then by um, establishing the attention firmly in the present, but without clinging to anything, then there's that a sense of a stillness and spaciousness, peacefulness, as the process of, of uh, arising and passing away, the forming of, of sounds and thoughts and feelings, memories, ideas, perceptions, moods, takes shape, does its thing and dissolves. Well, in this way, that what, we, what we talk about as taking refuge in Buddha, that's exactly what we're doing in that process. That the heart is taking refuge in that quality of knowing, of, of awareness. And the more fully that we're able to, the heart is able to let go of, of any of the different um, formations of perceptions, thoughts and feelings that, that arise, uh, more, know them more fully and completely, and to not uh, entang- be, be entangled in them, then the more cle- completely the heart is, is uh, taking that refuge in the Buddha, and in essence being Buddha. And, it's, uh, and so that another of the aspects that's important is not like uh, we have to become Buddha, or become uh, awake. You know, it's more using an attribute that we already possess, but we don't realize we possess. It's like having a big inheritance, but not having had the letter from the lawyer yet. <laughs> like <laughs> There's a big bequest. That's, I I'm not, I'm, don't, don't think I have psychic powers, or that you've actually got an envelope waiting for you somewhere. But, <laughs> but it, it's as if we had received a large bequest and the uh, the letter from the lawyers hasn't hasn't reached us yet. That we, we have these great riches, but we're not necessarily aware of that uh, yet. Now, one of the um, the con- the confusions that we can experience in in this area are things that that are, are a little unclear. Um, is that we can? There's a whole vast range of meanings that we can be using uh, when we employ the word knowing. And so Ajahn Chah was particularly good at at, uh, at uh, describing this. So if I can find the right page, um, let's see. Again, in Food for the Heart, um, he talks about this. So the um, sati is mindfulness, sampajanya is self-awareness. This awareness is the actual one who knows, the Buddha. When there is sati sampajanya, understanding will follow. We know what's going on. When the eyes sees forms, is this proper or improper? When the ears hear sounds, is this appropriate or inappropriate? Is it harmful? Is it wrong? Is it right? And so on with the other senses. Therefore it said, we must have sati. If we have sati, we will see the state of our own mind. Whether we are thinking or feeling, we must know it. This knowing is called buddho, the Buddha, the one who knows, who knows thoroughly, clearly and completely. When the mind knows completely, we find the right practice. If you are without sati for five minutes, you are crazy for five minutes. Heedless for five minutes. To have sati is to know yourself, to know the condition of your mind and your life, to have understanding and discernment, to listen to the Dhamma at all times. There must be both, uh, let's see, when there is total knowing, a continuous and unbroken awareness at each and every moment, this is called presence of mind. If your attention drifts from the breath to other places, then the knowing is broken. Whenever there is awareness of the breath, the mind is there. There must be both sati and sampajanya. Sati is mindfulness, sampajanya is self-awareness. Right now you're clearly aware of the breath. He's giving some mindfulness of breathing instructions. This exercise of watching the breath helps Sati and Sampajanya develop together. They share the work. Having both Sati and Sampajanya is like having two workers lift a heavy plank of wood. Suppose these, suppose these two workers try to lift some heavy planks, but the weight is so great it's almost unendurable. Then a third worker, imbued with goodwill, sees them and rushes in to help. In the same way, when there is Sati and Sampajanya, then Panya, wisdom, will arise at the same place to help out. Then all three of them support each other. With Panya, there will be an understanding of sense objects. For instance, during meditation, you may start to think of a friend, but then Panya should immediately counter with, it doesn't matter, or stop, or forget it. Or if there are thoughts about where you'll go tomorrow, then the response of Panya will be, I'm not interested. I don't want to concern myself with such things. If you start thinking about other people, you should think, "Nope, I don't want to get involved. Just let go. It's all uncertain. This is how you should deal with sense objects in meditation. Recognizing them as not sure, not sure, and maintaining this kind of awareness. So when um, uh, he's also describing that in other places, he uses uh, um, the analogy of of sati being a very simple natural function. Uh, So that when we talk about knowing just in terms of sati or ordinary mindfulness, Really, that means like the one who cognizes. So it's not a particularly transcendent quality. It's just registering there's this happening in the moment. I can hear this sound. There's a feeling in my body. There's a particular temperature in the room. There's a sense of the, the mood of the moment. There's a kind of cognizing sound, sight, feeling. And so any kind of, of creature that has basic sense organs has that kind of sati as a basically um, basic cognition of experience. So uh, he would use the analogy, that's like the hand. Is like sati. So then sampajanya, or what he always translated as self-awareness, sometimes as, as um, clear comprehension. Or, some, uh, or um, Ajahn Samadho in his uh, equally splendid book called Intuitive Awareness, available only by free, from free distribution, but uh, highly um, uh, recommended, he translates Sampajanya as intuitive awareness. So the Ajahn Chah would use the analogy of Sampajanya is like the arm that directs the the uh, the hand to uh, or enables the hand to reach where it, where it's going to go to. Panya wisdom um, is the body that is the life source, and without the body, then the hand and the arm kind of don't have much use, right? You know, if my arm was detached from my body. It, that the sati and the sampajanya wouldn't be able to, the hand can't go anywhere, the, the sampajanya can't operate because there's no life source, there's no um, basis, there's no root for it. So, uh, whereas uh, sati, that ordinary mindfulness, is like perceiving an object, then sampajanya is a sense of the the knowing the context within the, which that object is a- appearing. So, the, that would be to say, okay, you can you can cognize the sound of my voice and um, get a sense of the words. But then the, the bigger picture is, well, here we are, it's Sunday morning, July the 2nd at Spirit Rock, and there's a big crowd of people, and it's the beginning of a day long, and uh, I came here in a rush, and I was all agitated, but now I'm feeling more calm. Or I was calm when I got up, and now I'm feeling agitated. <laughs> <laughs> or... Uh, or like, oh, there's that friend of mine over on the other side of the room and I'm, I've, I've just noticed her and so um, I'm thinking um, at some point today I'm going to go and say hello. That's a thought in my mind. Um, or, oh, there's, that, there's my ex on the other side of the room. How am I going to get through today without seeing him? I hope we don't meet in the corridor. Oh, that's the fear of crossing paths with my ex feeling. <laughs> So that uh, sampajanya is not always involving friends and partners. I mean, you can <laughs> Basically, it's the context within which an object appears. So that uh, whereas the sati is just uh, focusing on an on a individual uh, form, the bigger picture is sampajanya. Then panya, uh, which is the uh, transcendent wisdom, or what we can also u- in, use these words, vijja, or knowing, or... Um, or jnana, uh, these are all referring to the same kind of, uh, of, of process. This is where the knowing is really transcendent or is the, really the Buddha wisdom, is that uh, a sense of, oh, well, I call that my ex or I call that the, the sound of the, the Dhamma talk or I call this a, 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 f- a mood of feeling happy, but actually this is just Perceptions, memories, feelings arising, ceasing within the field of awareness. It's not, uh, it's not inside, it's not outside, it's not self, it's not other. It's just patterns of nature taking shape and forming that are, are transient and ownerless. Uh, they are, are not self, they're not mind, they're not anything that can be ultimately satisfying or, um, or oppressive in any way. They are what they are. They arise, they cease, they have no substance, they're completely empty. So we have these uh, an easy model of these three layers, uh, and probably during today I'll be referring to these, uh, this, this pattern a few more times. Sati, Sampojanya, Panya, mindfulness, uh, clear comprehension, and, and wisdom, uh, or knowing. And so that when we're, we're uh, cognizing an object, when, when we're aware of something, it's important to, to be uh, alert to where on that scale uh, we're perce- how we're perceiving things. Are we just cognizing? or Are we cognizing something? Uh, uh, is there a knowing within the context? Or is there a, a, the most deep level knowing of seeing, oh, this is all just happening within my mind? Well, I, I say I am at spirit rock, but actually spirit rock is in me. I mean, not me personally, but you too. Because right now, for every single one of us, whether our eyes are open or closed, and again, we'll, we'll develop this a bit during the day, this room and the rest of Spirit Rock is in your mind. Everything that you know about this moment, where is it happening? Sign, there's sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought where is all that happening? You close your eyes, the room vanishes. Then, hear a sound. You say, "Well, the sound is coming from the bell. The sound is in the room. But then, how do we we know there's sound? Because of hearing, where is hearing registered? In the mind. So, our perceptual process weaves together sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought, feeling, memory, uh, ideation, and creates me in here and the world out there, but actually, all of this is happening within our consciousness, right? If suddenly we have an aneurysm and switch off <laughs> or, or keel over with a blackout, then the world vanishes, right? I mean, maybe you know, the world carries on around us as people say, oh dear, you know, she just fell over. <laughs> and this does happen occasionally during meditation retreats. <laughs> That The world seems to be gathering around, but you, you the experiencer, are not uh, involved. You know, you've, you've switched off. So that subjectively, the world has vanished. So I'm not saying that uh, like from a sort of sol- solipsistic um, position, like uh, the famous bishop who is uh, on the other side of the pond is called Bishop Barclay, but over here would be called Bishop Berkeley, <laughs> after whom the town is, is named famous um, uh, philosopher, Irish philosopher, actually, not even English. <laughs> famous Irish philosopher, Bishop Barclay. Um, it's not uh, as he put forward in some of his, his uh, philosophies that the, the whole world is in, invented and created by the mind, but more to recognize that everything that we know about the world, everything we ever have known about the world, has happened within the scope of our mind. Right? I mean, this is maybe this is unusual to think, but this is not revolutionary, right? I mean, please disagree with me if if you wish. But as far as I can tell, everything I've ever known about life since day one, when I came out uh, wailing in Kenshill Hospital in Tenterden, Kent, England, (laughs) or maybe I wasn't wailing—I'm not sure. (laughs) When I appeared from day one, everything was known through this mind. Uh, and probably even before I was born, everything was known through the mind. And so that what we're, we're doing with this process of developing wisdom and this uh, taking, learning how to truly take refuge in the Buddha knowing, Buddha wisdom, is training the heart to rest in that quality of awareness, to be that very knowing, that space which receives and knows the world without confusion, that holds the whole world and all of its beauty and ugliness and, and ordinariness in all its arising and ceasing. And the more that we are able to abide with this quality of knowing, be the, the one who knows, then we find a, a quality of integration and a quality of, of peacefulness that uh, can we can never find when it's me buzzing around in the world doing my thing, even if I'm buzzing around carefully, you know, attentively, <laughs> doing my thing. As long as there's a me moving around in a world with you, yeah, don't take it personally, but there's a me here and a you out there and the, and the world, And no matter how hard we try to harmonize, with that that equality of, of absolute harmony can never be established. It's only when there's this radical letting go and a radical um, see, relinquishment of, of uh, self-centeredness, of self-view, and this uh, training the heart to, to uh, abide in this quality of awareness that we can find a, a true sense of integration and true harmonization of, of our lives uh, in the world. That which is aware of sense objects is called mind. Sense objects wander into the mind. A sound, for instance, enters through the ear and travels inward to the mind, which acknowledges that it is the sound of a bird, a car, or whatever. Now this mind that acknowledges the sound is still quite basic. It's just the average mind. So this is the one that cognizes or acknowledges. That's sati. Perhaps annoyance arises within the one who acknowledges. We must further train the one who acknowledges, quote-unquote, to become the one who knows in accordance with the truth, quote-unquote, known as buddho. If we don't clearly know in accordance with the truth, then we get annoyed by the sounds of people, cars, machinery, and so on. The ordinary untrained mind acknowledges the sound with annoyance. It knows in accordance with its preferences, not in accordance with the truth. We must further train it to know with vision and insight, or jnana-tasana, the power of the refined mind, so that it knows the sound simply as sound, if we don't cling to a sound, there is no annoyance. The sound arises and we simply note it. This is called truly knowing, the arising of sense objects. If we develop the buddho, clearly rising the, realizing the sound as sound, then it doesn't annoy us. It arises according to conditions. It is not a being, an individual, a self, an us or a them. It's just sound. The mind lets go. This clear and penetrating knowing is called buddho, With it, we can let the sound simply be sound. It doesn't disturb us unless we disturb it by thinking, I don't want to hear that sound. It's annoying. Suffering arises because of this attitude. Right here is the cause of suffering. We don't know the truth of this matter. We haven't developed the buddho. We are not yet clear, not yet awake, not yet aware. Such is the raw, untrained mind, a mind that is not yet truly useful. So um, I think that's probably a good enough introduction. <laughs> Covers a, a, a few of the, the um, <laughs> basic uh, bones of of the uh, the, the subject, but uh, I'm happy to uh, answer a few questions, or if there's any particular uh, things that I brought up that are unclear, please uh, please speak up also so others can hear the question.
2: Well, the last one you brought up. Uh is one of my uh, greatest attachments, I suppose, in terms of annoying sounds, especially ones that keep me awake uh, from neighbors and so on. And uh, whether it's like pounding techno music or, or even lively voices at 3 o'clock in the morning, mm. um, I, I do find it difficult to just hear the sound as much as I've tried to practice in that direction. Partly because it wakes me up, and I think that I experienced that as an injury, mm, mm. and so I, I wonder if you could uh, speak something about.
0: It. <laughs> well, it's uh, it all lies in the attitude. It's like oh, uh, several times in in this collection of Ajahn Chah's teachings, he talks about a very insightful occasion that that uh, he had when he was uh, uh, a young monk traveling on. Uh, on what's called on Tudong, traveling through the, the countryside. And so he's just living under a mosquito net and sort of camping out in the forest. And and he'd been camping near this village for a, a little while. And, and he would go into the village every morning on alms round um, and then go back to his place in the forest and, and uh, to, to his camp and, and meditate there, doing walking and sitting meditation. And then one night there was a, a festival in the village. And, it's, uh, and then uh, uh, the way it is in, in Thailand is uh, that they, when they have a party, it's, it's at night time because it's far too hot during the day. so And then these festivals tend to go on all night long. And so he was sitting there thinking, they know that there's a monk up here in the forest meditating and... You know, I, every morning I walk through the village and they call themselves my disciples and they put food in my bowl and they're ever so respectful. As soon as I'm out of the village then they totally forget themselves and they're boozing and dancing and playing music and on and on and on and on. But then as, as he sat there, uh, he began to realize, well, actually the sound is just sound. If there's an argument here, it's only coming from my side. You know, the sound is not trying to annoy me. The sound is just doing its duty as sound. That's what it's supposed to do. It sounds. Uh, it sounds job to make noise. That's that's what it does. That's its nature. That's its characteristic. So that uh, if there's a, an argument here, if there's a fight, it's because I'm fighting with the sound. You know, I'm uh, I'm annoying it. It's not annoying me. And uh, and this had a very powerful effect on him because he realized that. When he stopped believing in his uh, righteous indignation and his um, his kind of reasonable complaints, it's like they should know better. After all, they they take they look ever so pious when they take the five precepts. They're all bowing, with their heads down, and their hands together, and they're all very holy when I'm giving them the five precepts. And as soon as I'm you know my my back's turned, then they're out hitting the Mekong. And. Uh, and so on, he said, "If I stop believing that and thinking about that, and if instead I just notice what's happening, the sound is making a noise, but my, my mind doesn't have to make any noise. And he realized the sound is, is noisy, but my mind is actually quiet if I let it be that way. And so um, that, that was like a, quite a powerful turning point in his practice because he realized how he'd spent years trying to find the perfect place that was not going to annoy him, (laughs) you know, where the conditions were just right, or that, you know, when he was in the, when he was in the monastery, you know, he, uh, the monks didn't practice well enough, and, and they didn't sit straight enough, and they, that they didn't look after the place well enough, and, you know, none of the, and then the teacher was too, too boring, or he went on too long, or he didn't teach enough, and Everything he went, Everywhere he went, it was always, you know, it's too long or it's too short or it's too fat or it's too thin or it's too... It was always too something. Can't stay here. I've got to keep going. And he realized that he was, he was spending his whole life trying to find a place where the world would not annoy him. And it had not occurred to him that the trouble was, the annoyance was coming from inside. And so it's worse when we have a reasonable complaint. It's like, I, you know, they they know that I'm next door. They know I don't like that particular kind of music. You know, we have an agreement, we have a we have a road we have, you know, have a street association. Yeah, you know, we have laws to protect <laughs> private <laughs> citizens like me you know, from this kind of thing. And then that that's the kind of uh, dagger twisting in the wound because mm-hmm. it's like it's when we have a reasonable complaint but even so even when our complaint is reasonable even if we are being mistreated and it is unjust it's still up to up to us whether we make a problem out of it so that that seeing how um, the 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 root of it is our attitude then if if we feel well out of compassion something needs to be said and we kind of, we we uh, politely step outside and say you know can you turn that down and if they say "get a life" <laughs> or something along those lines, um, then then just leave it alone, because moment by moment it's up to us whether we make a problem out of it, and that um, we uh, we find that when we recognise where the the difficulty lies, and we we train ourselves to be able to to not contend, it's not making ourselves into a doormat we're not trying to just be passive it's not a matter of never taking action but seeing that it takes two to fight and that if we're determined not to contend then we can actually um, have a a very peaceful life uh, and work with the world and and, take action and do useful things but from a a non-contentious non-demanding place
2: I, mean, I tried to practice with some of that. I got to a point where I could sort of dream about dogs barking instead of waking all the way up. <laughs> <away. laughs> but, um, but I also, uh, there are like elements of sleep deprivation too mm-hmm. that enter into which I mm-hmm. experience as, I don't just think it's a delusion. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like it you has know, endocrine changes. It does things to you during the day, or, you know, in terms of sleep cycle and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I suppose yes, I can have a different attitude about whether I'm incapacitated during the day <laughs> <laughs> and just kind of go with it. But I. Um, so I guess the part that. I guess I still find some kind of like stickiness with, I suppose, is, uh, is around not just having a different attitude about it, but actually where, do, where does self-care kind of all mm-hmm. enter into it in terms of
0: interacting with the world? Whether to take arms against the sea of troubles.
2: <laughs> right.
0: To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune and noisy neighbors or to take arms against the sea of troubles, call in the law and by opposing end them. So this is an ancient question. And that uh, <coughs> you, you, know, you can't think your way to a, to a solution. You know, you have, that's why this element of, of, of sampajanya and panya is is really woven into that, this intuitive awareness, uh, this clear comprehension. It's like weighing up the whole situation and then drawing upon your intuition. Because if you try and make up a list of pros and cons, you end up even losing even more sleep. Right? <laughs> so it's more to do with learning to trust your own, draw upon your own intuition and learning to trust that and then... To, to take in the whole situation, the whole sort of context, and then to, to feel it out for yourself. Okay, is this the time to act? Is it time to not act? What, what's the motivation for this? Is this, uh, is this anger driving this? Is this compassion? Is this just a response to the moment? What's, what's the appropriate quality here? So then you, you begin to, to, to let wisdom be what guides your life rather than my rights, <laughs> And then when it's time to act, you find you can actually act with far more courage and, and forthrightness than if it's me taking a stand. <laughs> Sometimes you can go into things and, and, and also because you go in with a, from a, a place of selflessness and, and an attunement to what's appropriate so that that's what others receive. So that if, you're, if it's kind of that righteous guy from number 13 doing his thing again, <laughs> Even if they're feeling it's a bit noisy, they won't turn it down because it's just that righteous guy having a go at us again. <laughs> you know, that's how we are. We kind of, we're easily... But if it's, if it's coming from a place of, of uh, openness and selflessness, then that's what communicates. And uh, people say, oh yeah, well, actually we were thinking it was a bit loud too. Sorry about that. Well, would you like to join the party? <laughs> Or whatever you know, it 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 communicates itself in a different way. Yeah.
1: Um, I had an experience with that recently. um, I was meditating, and I do have someone who's got one of those souped-up cars next door, with the stereo is louder than people usually have in their house. (laughs) And I was meditating. I was like really upset, or you know, I was I was like trying to deal with it and, and not wanting to get upset about it. And then I sort of went. i'm sure it's from my teacher telling me you know build compassion and 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 let go of ego and i thought well you know i am thinking that that's not part of me you know and i and i kind of let that go and i just like you know i i'm human and that's part and i am part of everything so it kind of like there was some um maybe um what's the word? Uh, equal? Empathy. E- well, or equalizing or something, mm-hmm. not even empathy. I didn't feel empathy. I can't, I don't know if I should have. Done it. <laughs> but I, I felt that e- equal, uh, uh-huh. equanimity, uh-huh. because I felt like I have a mind, and I have actions, and I am human, and I am capable of doing something to that extent. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, it, it, I'm not so separate from that, and I live in a world that creates that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I am not outside of it because i live in you know there's some part of it that i even add to it in some way in my own you know and mm. so i'm not and for some reason all of a sudden i became sort of that whole one i don't know enlightened right now <laughs> we'll say that but i became more one with it and it didn't bother me and it, and i could be at peace and go into my meditation and it didn't matter i, I didn't notice it as much and it was kind of interesting it didn't have the impact um you know and that definitely comes from my uh you know my teachings, I think have mm-hmm. been told that, you know, like, because ego, you know, where I start and where I end and where mm-hmm. everyone else mm-hmm. in the world starts and end, which is always shifting and
0: changing. Yeah, yeah well, many of these situations, they arise because I've decided I'm going to be i I'm a meditator. <laughs> and so whereas five years before we were kind of partying, <laughs> then, you know, it's like, hey, turn it up. <laughs> Saturday night, let's go, you know. Which I certainly did plenty of that. And then, um, and then the people were saying, turn it down, what's that racket? How can you stand that noise? It's like, get a life. And then when you're on the other end of it, say, I'm a serious meditator. <laughs> it's because I've made this decision that I'm a meditator, and I, I like silence, that then suddenly that sound, which I was seeking and paying good money to hear, <laughs> spending a lot of energy to pursue... And going after ardently, then now this has becomes the annoying intruder that is not allowed, that's messing up my life. It's like uh, one of our, our there's a, 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 um, a monk in our community who was, uh, he was on pilgrimage in India. Uh, he w- walked around the Buddhist holy places, um, like a thousand mile pilgrimage he did. And, and India is an extremely noisy place. Anyone who's ever been there will know. The, the level of ambient sound in India is extremely high. And so trying to find a quiet place to meditate in India is often ex- an extremely vain search. And, uh, he, uh, and he was experiencing these sort of loud uh, music in the temples or wedding parties nearby and the, the uh, pilgrim's guest houses where he was staying. And he said that uh, whenever his mind started to to move towards complaining and getting upset about all the noise that these people were making, and even like in the temple, in the pilgrim's guest house, they were having these pu- noisy pujas, amplified pujas, <laughs> when the real pilgrims are supposed to be meditating. Not like these kind of shoddy pilgrims who are just sort of <laughs> playing devotional music at high volume, these kind of bad pilgrims. You know? <laughs> and... Uh, and he said what came back to him was his uh, uh, his neighbor in the Hall of Residence when he was at university, that uh, when, when he was uh, he was doing an English literature degree and, and his neighbor was... Were, and he was the kind of... This is Ajahn Suchito. He was a real party animal. And he was doing English literature and he was pretty good at his subject, so he never had to work. But his partner actually was at university to study <laughs> rather than just, you know have fun. <laughs> so his, his neighbor on the other side of the wall in the hall of residence was, was trying to get a degree in economics. And so he was always sort of uh, buried in his books. And, and, uh, and Ajahn Sajita always had his stereo. Uh, you know, we had stereos in those. those remember stereos? Yeah. <laughs> you know, record players with needles and big, <laughs> you know, large pieces of black plastic. Remember those? Yeah. Back in those days. So he would just have it cranked up at full volume and his you know, poor mate Brian would thump on the wall and say, Turn it down! Turn it down! It's just Brian. You can live <laughs> with it. And he would remember all of that, sort of dis- his dismissive attitude of like this, this um, guy next door who he he just uh, didn't care about. And his poor plaintive cries at two in the morning saying, Can you turn it down? And that uh, he realized that as he was traveling in India that uh, what it was like for his, for his friend on the other side of the wall. He says, oh. <laughs> and he started, he, like, like you were describing, he was in that position of his friend. It's like, I'm now, I'm now, I'm now Brian trying to get my economics degree. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's all this unwanted noise. And, and so 20 years before, he was the generator of it. So when we, we see that so much of what disturbs us or upsets us, is it's coming from our own particular desire systems and how relative that is. then, And using this quality of investigation, exploring, well, where does this attitude come from? Why am I upset? What makes this not just a sound or a perception? What makes this wrong? Where does that come from? So we explore that feeling. We explore our reactivity to it. And then this is it's called yoniso manasikara, in Pali or, or Dhamma Vijaya, exploring, investigating the causes of things. And this is part of the development of, of uh, cl- uh, clear comprehension and wisdom, is the use of Sati Sampajanya, uh, uh, of Yonisil This is like that, investigating and seeing where things come from. And when we see the, the causes of our experiences, what, what makes us upset or disturbed or imbalanced. That can go a long, long way to us um, letting go of that. If we don't realise where it, where it comes from, and we're just trying to treat treat things on a superficial level, very easily, we uh, we're just to patching the symptom. We don't get to the to the cause. So part of of the development, even though awareness itself is 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 like a a, uh, a almost a featureless quality. It just knows. It's aware. That we we use these tools, like uh, investigation, wise reflection, to more uh, fully enable the heart to rest with that uh, quality of unbiased awareness. Because the biases come from the things that we're that, the, that we're stuck to, wanting this, not wanting that, calling this good, that bad, this right, that wrong. And it's through it's like a, a scalpel that sort of that cuts through this the fine. Um, uh, adhesions, <laughs> uh, getting cutting through that—that that helps us that uh, to dissipate, and that we are able to just um, rest with that quality of, of unbiased knowing. So um, that's definitely enough by way of introduction. Okay, we'll, we'll have some more time for some other questions. But, but, uh, we've reached. Uh, ten already, so maybe uh, it's time to just have a a moment to stretch legs and uh, visit the restroom if need be, and then we'll have our first sitting for the morning. So please uh, uh, have a little bit of a stretch and then come back and we'll have the first guided meditation.
2: Before we try to,
0: to change anything or do anything, just take a few moments to, to notice how the mind feels, how the body feels. What's the texture of this moment? What's our mood like? Tired, elated, upset, peaceful. However it may be, just to to notice that, to be conscious of that. Also witnessing how the body feels. Is it tight, loose, heavy? Light. Agitated, easeful. Part of settling down is just this initial openness, attending to to what is here. What is our starting point? Where are we beginning this journey from? There's no right or wrong place to begin in terms of content of the mood or feeling. For the right place to begin in terms of attitude is to notice where we're at, what's happening? What's the shape of things? What's our material? And this fundamental nature of mind that we're endeavoring to uncover and clarify is both perfectly awake, aware, and perfectly peaceful. So these two qualities interpenetrate right at the very heart of our own nature. Energy, alertness, and peacefulness realization so if we wish to to clarify establish the heart in this this quality which is both perfectly aware alert and perfectly peaceful And the way we arrange the body is based upon helping to support the development, the clarification of those qualities. So to embody the quality of energy, alertness, Attention. Allow the body to straighten, the spine to lengthen. Not to be stiff or rigid, but just letting the body grow like a a plant reaching skyward, a tree rising firmly from the ground. (gasps) It's allowing the spine to stretch to its natural extension. Feeling the body stretching, opening. And then to embody the quality of peacefulness, ease allow the the body to relax around the spine, softening the muscles of the face and the neck, shoulders and arms. Feeling the trunk of the body, allowing the chest to open, the stomach to relax and spread. It's giving ourselves permission to be at ease, to settle down. It's gently, steadily sweeping the attention through the body, knowing each part, feeling it face, the shoulders, the arms, the chest, the belly, hip joints, <coughs> down through our legs, our knees, ankles, <coughs> feeling the presence of the whole body, <coughs> and with the spine as the central column firm, steady, central pillar, allowing the rest of the body to soften and relax around that. It's like a coat hanging on a hook, on a coat hanger, totally free from tension, Easeful at home. And the mind's tendency is always to wander and to drift, carried off into feelings in the body, ideas, memories, plans, sounds. So to recognize and cultivate this quality of, of awareness, of open attention, The first thing we need to do is to train the mind not to be randomly caught by perceptions and thoughts, moods, to notice that habit, understand how it works, grow away from it, break free from it. So bringing the attention to the natural rhythm of the breathing wherever you find the breath most easy to follow in the chest or the nostrils the abdomen just let that feeling of the breath moving be at the very center of your attention keeping it very simple Right now there's nothing we need to figure out, understand, plan or recollect. Just to let our task simply to be to attend to the rhythm of the breathing. Focusing on that one central object, let that be the very heart of the mandala. The center point. without trying to change the breath in any way. just feeling the body breathing, training the attention, the awareness to receive, to know that rhythm. And when the attention wanders, drifts into thought and feeling, Consciously let go, release that. Simply returning to the rhythm of the breath again. as we follow the breath back and forth, as the mind begins to settle, to rest more easily with the breath, we notice the two turning points. The end of the inhalation before the exhalation begins. We breathe in there's a brief pause before the out-breath begins we follow the out-breath the out-breath reaches its end there's another pause a turning point before the next in-breath begins We begin to notice these moments of stillness when there is no breath moving. The in breath and a pause. The out breath and then a pause. In that moment of the breath turning, notice the quality of stillness, of spaciousness. Even if it's just for a moment, just picking that up, noticing it. Then the breath begins again the in-breath, the out-breath, each having its own texture, its own quality. So we're feeling all these dimensions of the breath, knowing these different dimensions, different qualities of the breath as it enters and leaves the body. The feeling of movement the feeling of stillness.